Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall join me to discuss the Oklahoma judge's ruling against Johnson & Johnson, and then Matt Muscardi joins Megan and me to discuss fast fashion. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. So before we begin, I hate to tell you this, but this is Matt Muscardi's last episode and last day at MSCI ESG Research. Matt is the reason I am on this wonderful research team, so it pains me deeply that he is leaving, and I've been pissed since I've heard the news. But Matt is going on to do other things, and will be starting a podcast of his own called The Long and the Short, and at the end of the episode, he will fill me in on his plans. Stay tuned for that. Anyway, here's our first story. An opioid drug epidemic continues to rage in the United States fueled by prescription pain medications. Drug manufacturers and distributors are now being sued for their role in the health crisis. And on Monday, a judge in Oklahoma ordered Johnson & Johnson to pay $572 million in a landmark opioid trial. It was found that Johnson & Johnson in part breached the state's public nuisance law. So our melancholic stat card is actually a melancholic thematic report because at MSCI ESG Research, we not only rate companies on ESG factors, but we are also prolific writers of reports on our economic sectors. And we wrote a report in March 2018 called Bitter Pills, the U.S. Opioid Crisis and Potential Impact on Healthcare Companies, where we drew on our industry research to understand individual companies' revenue exposure to opioids, both in absolute terms and as a percentage of total revenues. And in it, we discussed how both pure play companies like Insys and diversified players like J&J would fare as the public backlash continued against opioid suppliers. And we did a pretty all right job modeling the range of potential legal opioid-related liabilities. For instance, we thought J&J and Insys and Teva Pharmaceuticals would all be fined in the hundreds of million dollar range, which was basically borne out. So if you have access to the report, give it a read. It's a good one. Anyway, let's get to it. Megan and Rick, thanks so much for joining me. Megan, you were one of the authors of the Bitter Pill Report, so I wanted to first start out with you and ask you how these lawsuits, which will likely continue to be brought against the healthcare value chain, are affecting the different companies that make and distribute prescription opioids. Yeah, so this isn't actually the beginning of the high-profile lawsuits because if you look at the history, they they go back a few years, but they've kind of come in rounds. So this is like the most high-profile company settlement or penalty in the latest round, and it's probably going to spark off some some more kind of following in this round. I know there's some more due this fall. So we've got the drug makers like Johnson & Johnson and also some smaller, more dedicated players like Insys insist that basically opioids are all that they have done. Uh, And then you've got the distributors that interface between the manufacturers and the drugstores, basically. And then you've got the drug retailers, your CVS, Rite Aid, Walgreens kind of companies. And then finally, you've got insurers who've actually played a role. So it's a really the whole ecosystem has been involved in this thing. But right now, what we're seeing most is the manufacturers being the biggest targets of uh, lawsuits and government and actions. That being said, the distributors 
um, did face some big suits and, and made some big payouts a couple of years back. Yeah, and the thing with Johnson & Johnson, it's such a huge company. Their opioid sales are like 2% of their total revenue. So if for some reason they're, there's a moratorium on selling opioids by public companies, let's say, Johnson & Johnson is not going to be as greatly affected as some of the pure play companies that derive 100% of their revenues from opioid sales. That includes companies like Insys, uh, Purdue Pharma is one of the big ones in the news right now, and the Sacker family is actually going to lose control of the company because of their issues with opioid sales. But if we're talking about what's hurting Johnson & Johnson most is their brand is taking a huge hit. Because it used to be that Johnson & Johnson was the gold standard for hospitals. And at one point, it had to recall all of its Tylenol due to contamination problems. And James Burke, which was the company's chairman, was widely praised for putting customers first and recalling all the 31 million bottles um, of contaminated capsules. And the company decided to replace all these capsules free of charge. And Johnson Johnson's gotten famous for its baby shampoo and Band-Aids. But now J&J is also being sued for its talcum powder causing ovarian cancer. It has problematic pelvic mesh. Its anti-stroke drugs are causing excessive bleeding. And now the opioid crisis is coming to be born. So how damaging are all these things for the Johnson & Johnson brand? Megan, if you could answer that first. And then maybe, Rick, you can go into who in the company should be held responsible for these issues and who should be taken to task for not trying to fix them. Yeah, I think that's an interesting question because, yeah, in this paper that you referenced called Bitter Pills from last year, we we estimated, where we couldn't get figures, estimated what percentage of a, each company's business was derived from opioids. And in Johnson & Johnson's case, it was clearly less than 1%. So a lot of actual dollars in an absolute sense, but a drop in the bucket in terms of the company's overall business. And so I don't know, maybe it looked like a, kind of a moneymaker back in the day when pain killers were being pushed by the pharma sector in general. Um, there was a, a real period in the 90s and early 2000s where the pharma sector was just pushing the idea that pain should always be managed down to virtually nothing and that opioids were the way to do that in not just extreme cases like cancer, but like anybody with a bad backache. So that may have went kind of what brought them into it, but really where the these companies have gotten into trouble, including J&J, &J, is that their marketing during that time downplayed the risks and played up the idea that these products were effectively safe. And that's just turned out not to be true. I, I think that's right. And and you, you can talk about this being uh, such a tiny percentage of revenues or tiny percentage of, of profits. But you know the governance question we always ask in a case like this is very simple. Where was the board? You can talk about responsibility. You can talk about the role of management. You can talk about where the decisions were made. But at the end of the day, when a brand suffers this kind of hit, where was the board? And and when we when we say where was the board at a company like Johnson and Johnson, um, you know, we're talking about a board that's that's comprised of a number of very very uh, well known. Um, CEOs or former CEOs of other large household name American companies. We're talking about a board that did have several medical experts from very large and well-respected universities um, who, who were sitting on this board. And so they, they've been overseeing this company and the decisions that this company has made strategically, uh, in some cases, 
back more than 10 years, where was the board when the decision was made to um, create that kind of a marketing presence around, uh, you know, even if you discount, even if you just say, okay, we're not going to look at the societal impact. We're not going to look at the societal impact here. Even if you don't, you set that aside and say, that's not our problem. Our, our problem is to make money for shareholders. Our fiduciary responsibility is to the company. You still have that question about brand value. And in this case, this board allowed the company to go in a direction which resulted in uh, not just a, a half a billion dollar fine, but a, a enormous hit to the reputation of, as you say, a household name. You know, I've asked this question. I've asked this question before, and it's something I keep thinking about. If you're an investor in Johnson and Johnson, if you're an investor in one of these, maybe not pure play opioid companies, that is totally reliant on the selling of prescription drugs, do you try to pressure the board to remove themselves from this high-risk venture? It's not like you're going to derail the company, so it's not like you're investing in Exxon and saying, Exxon, stop um, selling oil. Rather, you're saying, look, this is 2% of your your company, and it's just too risky, and here's the problem with uh, your brand um, being devalued, and here's all the money that you're going to spend on this. We want you as stakeholders to get out of this business. That's a fair question, and, and there are mechanisms for that. Um, we may see some shareholder proposals um, at, at some of these companies that would push them in a different direction. A lot will depend on the makeup of the investors at a particular company. Um, in terms of the board at Johnson & Johnson, we've already seen them add some, some new individuals, uh, more medical experts in particular. Um, the answer is typically not to say, okay, the board's got to go, let's put in a new board. Uh, it's much more complicated than that, unfortunately. But um, investors do have a voice. Investors can influence those kinds of decisions. And it will be very interesting to see uh, who speaks up and in what way they do so. As with other problematic uh, products, um, we'll see some investors divesting. Investors who were previously in in some of these companies, not just Johnson and Johnson, but some of the actual uh, manufacturers, will see some some divestment. I know that there are some investors here in the U.S., especially a handful of Europeans, that are have been talking to companies and talking to us about this topic over the last couple of years. Um, I don't know offhand whether there have been any actual resolutions filed, but it has been a a source of concern both from a social ethical perspective and from a financial materiality perspective. All right, it's Matt's last official story, and he's a fashionable guy. False. So we decided to discuss fast fashion today because the New York Times reported that Francois-Henri Pinot, the chief executive of Keering, is creating another sustainable fashion coalition that will set guidelines, which won't be legally binding, but the guidelines will be focused on climate, biodiversity, and oceans. There are already 32 signatories, which include high-end brands like Chanel, Prada, and Hermes, athletic apparel names like Nick, Nike, athletic apparel names like Nike and Adidas, as well as fast fashion retailers like H&M Group and the parent company of Zara, Inditex. 
So since this coalition was proposed by the CEO of Keering, I decided to focus on Keering for our stack card. Remember, one of the things we do at MSCI ESG Research is assess companies on their ESG factors and give them a triple A to triple C rating. And Keering is rated a double A. It actually used to be rated a AAA, but Italian, French, and Swiss authorities are investigating the company over alleged tax evasion. But what gave Keering the coveted AAA rating for the moment was its industry-leading sustainability practices, especially when it comes to sourcing its leather and cotton. It takes great care of its suppliers also. Apparently not really its taxes, but at least its suppliers are well taken care of. Anyway, this new coalition is kind of odd to me because Curing and others are already part of a coalition called the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. And regardless, the problems in the industry are kind of fundamental to the sector's nature. Um, it promotes rampant consumerism, and it sells clothes that last like three hours before they get thrown away. And fast fashion companies actually burn the stuff that they don't want because they want to keep their products kind of exclusive. Actually, this isn't just done by fast fashion companies. It's also done by luxury brands for the same reason. So, Matt, tell me, if the problem is so fundamental to the way these fashion companies operate, how can the industry change? So, hold on. Can you ask the question again? I was busy throwing out my pants and putting on new ones. Um, the, 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 I, I've had discussions with Linda, our intrepid head of ESG here, over years about fast fashion as sort of the penultimate example of unsustainable behavior because in its very nature, it is production of something that you plan to throw away. Yeah. That's true. Um, but sustainability is now at the front of everyone's mind. So so I don't think this sort of throwaway business model can be sustained for the long term. Now, let me ask you a hypothetical. If you were running one of these companies, how would you make them more sustainable? Uh, you know, there's they, they'd have to make huge shifts in their supply chain. They would ha almost have to slow down some of the process because the act of acquiring more sustainable materials or recycling materials takes more time than just generating the new materials and burning them. And then you've even got questions about, um, you know, in, in prep for this, I was reading about the health impacts of just wearing some of the clothes because they use flame retardants um, for, you know, and polyester. And then when they're burning it, they're releasing that into the atmosphere. So Mike, to your point, if you're talking about carbon, they may reduce the carbon of manufacturing it. But if they're burning half their supply when they're done, you're releasing all sorts of other things into the air. There's like a holistic problem that the industry faces that's really difficult to sort of navigate around if the model maintains fast in the name. I've been thinking about this in the context of what we've seen around plastics over the last year. And of course, it's related because a lot of this clothing is, in fact, made of plastic. But even apart from that, you know, we had been flagging for years waste as a potential long-term issue for investors. And it, it took a while to arrive, but man, is it here now? And it is actually really challenging certain kinds of business models, whether it's from the consumer preferences changing or the regulators acting. And I think it is possible that we could see something similar happen with fashion. And it's hard to predict exactly when that fire is going to really catch to go from smoldering to burning as plastics have done. Right. I mean, for example, not many people want to wear fur coats anymore. 
Actually, Jingmin Hu, uh, one of our analysts in Shanghai specializing in the fashion industry, gave a presentation the other week about fast fashion, and she mentioned a a couple of engagement areas that were good for investors to marinate upon, and one was the raw material sourcing and chemical safety of the products, and changing consumer behavior around those issues. And I and and changing purchasing behavior is is hard if you've built your economic system around consumerism, but changing the way a product is produced is comparatively easier. And in fashion, you have these plant-based or recycled materials that are now available. They might be a little bit more expensive, but they are available. So I think it would be interesting for people who listen to this podcast for us to talk about how we assess companies that have these more sustainable raw material options available to them. For those companies that proactively use these materials, do we view them as opportunistic and getting ahead of the market? Or do we view companies that don't use these materials as risky and actually falling behind the market? I think we're probably still in the opportunity phase here, but it it could shift. And I wouldn't be surprised with information that's starting to come out around uh, nanoplastics and that kind of thing, you know, getting into your bloodstream and the chemicals you were talking about. I wouldn't be surprised to see it go a bit like organic food has gone, where it, the move really starts to take off around things for children. Because while adults might be willing to do, take risks themselves, they aren't necessarily willing to do that for their kids. And so where they won't buy organic food for themselves, they'll buy organic milk for their children, organic breakfast cereal, whatever it is. And I wouldn't be surprised to see something similar to that happen as the chemical safety issues become more well known, that you start hearing people say, well, I'm, you know, I'm only putting my kids in organic cotton or whatever it is. I mean, I I think my, McKinsey had a, a report that sort of overlaps with this question about can the fast fashion industry be sustainable and in their sort of list of ways i mean amongst them were like you know changing their 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 policies and standards and their practices and supporting you know new technologies and things like that but uh, in their list was sort of a, the investment in in new fibers right and and i think um the interesting the uh play going forward will be uh, and this goes to megan's point about sort of like the regulatory smolder going to burning it may not actually be sort of like like it is in plastics where you're banning single use plastics or you're banning single, you know, single use clothes kind of thing, like single season clothes. It, it, it may not be that. It may actually be IP protection because the biggest problem in fashion is there is no IP protection. There's no patent protection. When you create clothes, they can be ripped off by another manufacturer instantaneously. So you lose exclusivity over that pretty fast. And, if the industry is to shift and move into a more sustainable space, part of that shift is going to be investing in a new way to make the clothes and new fibers. And it may be coupled with what's pushed, propelled other industries to progress around just basic IP law. Basic, And I'm no patent expert, right? I should caveat myself. But I do know that if they had protection over what it is they were doing, the idea of R&D and investing in new fibers becomes significantly more palatable to, the, to a company who's got to manufacture these things because it means if you create a sustainable fiber, the fiber of the future, and you own that fiber for a set period of time, you can reinvent what fast fashion looks like. 
I think that's a really interesting angle, actually, because I mean, we've seen that sort of R&D and development in the textile space for more high-end stuff, you know, technical gear and that kind of thing, where the rationale behind it has been to be able to charge a premium and you know better meet a need. But I could totally imagine, you're right, Matt, that if the industry can get its lobbying together or whatever it needs to do to get the kind of IP protections in place, that the incentive to develop different kinds of textiles could totally shift. And then if you're an investor and you're thinking about that, what those shifts might be and when they might happen, then what do you want to be looking for? You're probably looking for companies that have shown themselves to be adaptable and nimble and agile so that when those trends start to change, they're ready. I think that's a great ending. Matt, thanks for everything you've done. Gonna miss you so much. You exist because of me. You are my God. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everyone. All right, that's it. I wanted to thank Megan Eastman, Rick Marshall, and Matt. Matt just did his last episode, Tear Down, my goddamn eye. Matt, hit me with the plug. Where are you going? So if you were a listener to this podcast when I started it last year, you might remember the name Damian Rollis. Damian and I are pitching out. We're going to hang a shingle. We're going to create some podcasts, ESG-adjacent podcasts on our own. Uh, One called The Long, one called The Short. They'll be coming to a podcasting network near you. Um, So subscribe your ear holes to our podcasting mouths. (laughs) That sounds wrong. Okay, that's a good last official word. See ya. The MSCI ESG Research Podcast is provided by MSCI Inc.'s subsidiary, MSCI ESG Research LLC, a registered investment advisor under the Investment Advisors Act of 1940. And this recording and data mentioned herein has not been submitted to nor received approval from the United States Securities and Exchange Commission or any other regulatory body. The analysis discussed should not be taken as an indication or guarantee of any future performance, analysis, forecast, or prediction. The information contained in this recording is not for reproduction in whole or in part without prior written permission from MSCI ESG Research. None of the discussion or analysis put forth in this recording constitutes an offer to buy or sell or a promotional recommendation of any security, financial instrument, or product or trading strategy. Further, none of the information is intended to constitute investment advice or recommendation to make or refrain from making any kind of investment decision and may not be relied on as such. The information provided here is as is, and the user of the information assumes the entire risk of any use it may make or permit to be made of the information. Thank you.